Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. There are certain presidents who hold an endless fascination for Americans and also for people around the world. Teddy Roosevelt is one. He's the only president to have also appeared to have been a cowboy. But imagine being his friend. What would that be like? Thanks to Chip Bishop's new book, entitled The Lion and the Journalist, The Unlikely Friendship of Theodore Roosevelt and Joseph Buckland Bishop, we now have some idea. Hi, Chip. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I've I've had a varied career, I guess you could say. In fact, some say that I can't hold a job. But actually, I've tried to um, have a varied and interesting career from the time I was a young man when I got interested in broadcasting up until the point of this book. I have worked as a youth drug counselor. I was an elected city counselor in Rhode Island. I was an aide in the campaign and administration of President Jimmy Carter. I was a Washington lobbyist. I'm an entrepreneur who started his own business and succeeded. And lastly, um, somewhat late in life, had become an author. So I'd like to start out with some of the questions that biographers always love to ask each other. Uh, and first things first, I think a lot of our listeners would probably like to know, what was it like writing about a family member? Well, it was a very personal experience. Um, I, I felt from the beginning that this family member of mine was an unknown and therefore underappreciated character in American history, that His relationship with uh, President Roosevelt and in the days before he became president was an important turning point in political journalistic relationships. And I felt I needed to get that story out. It was a story that needed to be told. Um, in, In writing about a relative, your tendency, I think, is to not find fault And I think you have to guard against that as you proceed and to tell the story of this relative warts and all. What was your family's attitude toward the project? I think the family was um, a little puzzled that I would spend so much time and energy on this. But I think when the book was published and people had a chance to read it, it was a sort of an, oh, wow, I'm really glad you did this. I'm glad you brought this tale to the surface so that it has become a part of history. This is kind of an enormous question. Um, first of all, if you could clarify what your relationship is to the subject and then how you, what first brought brought them to your attention, how you first heard this story, and also what it was like, what made you decide that you wanted to pursue this story and write about it and live with these people for 30-plus months? Right, right. Well, uh, the character in question here is Joseph Buckland Bishop. He was the brother of my great-grandfather. 
and I refer to him um, easily as Uncle Joe. I think the story began really when I was a young man, maybe 12, 13, 14 years old. I can recall sitting around the Thanksgiving and Christmas dining table with my extended family in Rhode Island, listening to the conversation that uh, invariably turned uh, to Uncle Joe and his pal Theodore Roosevelt. And that, uh, that intrigued me when I was young, but, you know, beyond that, I wasn't ready to take that story any further. Uh, fortunately, as I got older and, and went off to college, another uncle of mine began to give me as holiday gifts signed copies of Uncle Joe's books. He had written somewhere between 18 and 20 of them, including articles, uh, over the years. And the books that came down from the attic into my hands were first editions and usually inscribed by Joseph Buckland Bishop to one or another member of our family. And I treasured these books because I felt they were not only important to history, but they were important to our family. And they began to accumulate on my bookshelf over the years, and I, I, I let them sit there somewhat gathering dust as I uh, got married and raised a family and pursued my career. And it was about, um, I don't know, three to five years ago that I was sitting in my den one night. It was quiet. I was alone in the house. And I began, began staring at these books on the bookshelf. And I thought to myself, self, I said, there is a story here. And I need, I need to learn more about this story. And I, I began reading these books. And I began reading Theodore Roosevelt-themed um, books to try to get a better understanding of what this relationship really was. And was it fleeting? Was it important? Was it significant? And the more I dug and the more I read, the more I realized that um, this was an extraordinary friendship uh, that had importance to both Bishop and to Roosevelt, and also to the nature of how politicians and journalists related to each other in the early part of this century. What sources were most helpful to you? I know there's some letters printed in the book. Was there anything else that was helpful? Well, you mentioned the letters. Um, I'm not sure this book would have been written without the letters. I was doing some initial online research on the topic and discovered in the uh, Theodore Roosevelt collection that Harvard University and also in the Library of Congress that um, Roosevelt and Bishop had written and exchanged over 600 letters to each other in the course of 25 years. And that was really uh, the gold mine. I, when I found I made it a point of going up to Harvard and, and began reading them and later uh, hired a research assistant who uh, copied these letters for me onto CD. They, they were not at the time available online, so I had to, I had to copy them. And I just read them uh, from beginning to end and began to really appreciate the nature of this uh, relationship that they had. Um, as I continued my research, um, one of the most important discoveries 
was a direct descendant of Joseph Buckland Bishop. His great-granddaughter, who I didn't know existed until I found her uh, living in the Russian River Valley of Northern California. And I contacted her sort of out of the blue and said, my name is Chip Bishop. I'm writing a book about your great-grandfather. Um, would you like to talk about this? And she was fascinated from the from the beginning. And we not only talked, we arranged a visit, and I went out to uh, Northern California and spent uh, the better part of a week uh, with the family out there, digging through letters which they had kept, diaries, looking at photographs, looking at other publications, um, a lot of which really contributed to the color and the the warmth of the story that emerged. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about who Joseph Buckland Bishop was before he met Teddy Roosevelt? Yes, Joseph Buckland Bishop was a Yankee farmer's son. He was born in uh, Seekonk, Massachusetts, a rural part of Massachusetts, eastern Massachusetts, um, in 1847. He... um, he grew up uh, working on the farm and uh, earning his way through school and succeeding in school and through relationships um, with teachers and principals, he was able to get into Brown University, uh, which was rather amazing because his family certainly did not have the resources to pay for an Ivy League education. But he went to Brown, did well there, was Phi Beta Kappa there. Um, and almost immediately upon graduation, again through connections he had made, uh, went to work for the New York Tribune, um, then arguably uh, the most famous newspaper in America at the time. It was it was published and edited by Horace Greeley. And uh, Bishop um, went quickly from becoming a beat reporter at 22, 23 years old to a member of the editorial staff, meaning that he would help write editorials, the newspaper's opinion pieces. And because the New York Tribune was a nationally circulated newspaper, uh, the opinions of the newspaper mattered, and they helped to sway public opinion all over the country. Uh, Bishop uh, went on to work for the New York Evening Post, which is where he met Roosevelt, and later on for the New York uh, Commercial Advertiser and Globe before he left journalism uh, in 1905 to follow Theodore Roosevelt to Washington. It was striking how in the narrative, even before they've met, they're they're simultaneously rising to prominence in New York. Yeah, uh, Roosevelt was a a rising politician um, in New York. He had been elected to the state assembly when he was about 23 years old, the youngest uh, person at that time to be elected. Um, Bishop, as I mentioned, had a rather fast um, rise into the world of living and working in New York City unbeknownst to each other until the time Roosevelt became New York City police commissioner which is a job that uh, he really wanted because the police force in New York at the time was corrupt to the core. 
It was um, a tool of the Tammany Hall um, Republican political machine. And Bishop, um, like Roosevelt, shared um, a passion for good government, for honesty and integrity in government. And they found that as Roosevelt crusaded to clean up the New York City Police Department and remove the corruption and the bribery, that this was something Bishop felt passionately about and that he could write supportedly of, supportedly of um, at a time when most of the newspapers in New York um, did not have the gumption to take on the political machine. So Roosevelt had an attitude toward the press that was somewhat atypical for the time. Can you discuss that attitude? Yeah, Roosevelt um, was one of our early presidents who believed that the news media uh, had a place in public policy making. Uh, in the days before Roosevelt and some of his early successors, if you were a member of the White House press corps, uh, you were consigned to life beyond the fence at the White House, where you stood once or twice a day and you received press releases that were handed through the gates. Uh, Roosevelt um, cannily understood that the news media was key not only to um, his own support, but to building public opinion in support of what he was trying to accomplish. This was a period where um, America was growing very fast. Uh, education levels were rising in America. People were reading lots of newspapers. And uh, theater understood early on that the news media could be a valuable ally to him in getting his programs through, uh, not only as police commissioner, but, but later on as governor of New York and ultimately as president of the United States. Uh, Bishop, who was a trained journalist and a trained writer of opinion, um, was fascinated by Roosevelt, this, this young fellow as police commissioner who was willing to take on the establishment. He seemed to be fearless, uh, totally courageous, and um, began to write about what Roosevelt was doing in New York and writing supportively of what he was doing. And those editorials, those early editorials in the New York Evening Post, um, caught Roosevelt's eye. And one day he picked up this newfangled invention called the telephone, and he called Bishop and he invited him for lunch. And the two of them got together and they began talking um, face-to-face about the issues of corruption in uh, the city of New York. And they they immediately realized, I think each did, that they could be helpful to the other. Uh, Roosevelt was an incredible source of information uh, to Bishop. Roosevelt would, would oftentimes leak information, give him an early look at policies and programs, and test those programs with Bishop to see if uh, they resonated with him and whether he would support those positions um, in the uh, Evening Post editorial pages. One of the things I found really interesting was that within the narrative, there is a tension between their 
having a working relationship and also being friends, particularly early on, I think before the friendship was really established, there was, there was Bishop's sort of enviousness towards some of Roosevelt's other friendships. Can you talk about how they did kind of transition from, well, I guess they didn't really transition because they just had both friendship and working relationship, but how did that work for them? Well, it evolved over time. Uh, Roosevelt um, was, I think by nature, uh, wary of people who were trying to move in close to him. Um, he he didn't always uh, immediately understand what, what the game was here. So when Bishop began to um, support him and write about him and, and meet with him, uh, Roosevelt needed to test the sincerity of that relationship. And there's one uh, rather famous story in the book of how uh, Bishop warned him of a... Uh, a character inside the uh, police commission who Bishop said was disloyal to Roosevelt. Roosevelt did not believe that initially. He said at the time, well, um, he's a good man. I boxed with him just the other day, and he's a good boxer. Well, Bishop turned out to be right. The the, uh, person in the commission ultimately was out to weaken Roosevelt, and um, when, when... the police commissioner discovered that and found that out. He then knew Bishop was really on his side, that, that he was a loyalist. And I think once you demonstrated your loyalty to Theodore Roosevelt, you could begin to emerge as a friend. And that friendship um, developed over time. Uh, they and their wives uh, became close socially. Uh, when Roosevelt uh, was governor of New York, um, Bishop and his wife Harriet uh, visited there often and dined at the governor's table. Um, they wrote lots and lots of letters uh, to each other uh, on on evolving positions that Roosevelt wanted to take. Um, eventually, um, the letters revealed that Bishop became very candid. Uh, in in his discussions with Roosevelt. If he thought that he was wrong or that he was uh, headed in the wrong direction, uh, he didn't hesitate to say so. And one of those, one of the famous encounters was during what is a now forgotten, pretty much forgotten incident, but in those days was very important. Um, The uh, coal strike of 1902, uh, where the miners in Pennsylvania had gone on Strike against the um, the coal uh, coal mine operators, who also happened to be the railroad barons, and Roosevelt's instincts were immediately with the coal miners in that situation. Um, Bishop um, initially uh, sided with the miners, with I'm sorry, with the, with the operators, and um, challenged Roosevelt in in several letters that his position supporting the miners was going to result in more violence in the in the mines. And um, that was a source of great conflict between the two. But eventually Roosevelt found a middle ground, resolved the coal strike, and um, won some pretty supportive editorials from Bishop, <laughs> as you might imagine. So we've seen how uh, the friendship was helpful to Roosevelt. How did it work the other way? What 
did this relationship have any sort of impact on Bishop's career as a journalist, particularly when Roosevelt was governor and his paper actively disagreed with some of his policies? Yeah, Bishop Bishop was, um, I, I call him in the book a schmoozer <laughs> because he was that. He was, um, you know, at his core, the Yankee farmer's son. And he enjoyed nothing more than hanging out with the big guys. Uh, by that I mean he enjoyed the social friendships of uh, Wall Street financiers, of politicians, uh, I think primarily because he was an influential voice in, in New York journalism. So the friendship um, and his closeness with Roosevelt became pretty common knowledge in the early part of the century. And um, as a result, Bishop gained access to a lot of places that uh, he otherwise would not have and um, could often be found in the drawing rooms of the finest hotels in New York, uh, the Metropolitan Club, the University Club, uh, sipping, sipping cocktails with the high and mighty. Um, when his, you know, original station uh, would not have predicted that kind of relationship. So Bishop really enjoyed uh, having friends in high places and made the most of it. How did Roosevelt's move into the presidency affect their friendship? It was really seamless, I think. Um, to refresh your um, readers' minds, uh, Theodore Roosevelt was vice president of the United States in 1901 when President McKinley was assassinated in Buffalo. And Roosevelt, uh, of course, was propelled into the presidency at the age of 42, uh, still to this day the youngest um, man ever to hold the office of president. Um, the letters reveal that when Roosevelt was returning from Buffalo, where McKinley was shot, on the train carrying the president's body to Washington, one of the early letters that he dashed off was to Bishop. And the letter uh, said, um, I must see you as soon as I return to Washington. And one of the great stories that emerged from the letters and from a memoir that Bishop had written uh, involved Roosevelt's first night alone as president in the White House. Um, Mrs. McKinley had finally moved out. Uh, Roosevelt's wife and children um, were still back at Sagamore Hill, his, his retreat on Long Island. And Roosevelt found himself, um, the first night he occupied the White House, pretty much by himself and without family. He did three things on that day. He held a cabinet meeting with uh, McKinley's cabinet officers and vowed to continue the president's policies. He called in the White House press corps into the White House and said, I'm going to continue McKinley's policies, and here is how I am going to be your president. I'm going to be up front. I'm going to be accessible. I'm going to tell you exactly what it is because you speak to the people, you speak to the readers, and they need to know what's going on here. And the third thing Roosevelt did that night is after uh, the White House press corps had left and Bishop was among that press corps contingent, uh, he invited Bishop to stay behind. And they spent the next several hours 
uh, talking privately one-on-one in the White House about Roosevelt's presidency and the, the kind of uh, leadership he planned to provide, the honesty and the integrity that he had shown as police commissioner and as governor of New York were to continue. And I think the fact that he asked Bishop to stay behind on his first night there was an indication of um, how he valued the friendship and how important uh, a character he felt Bishop was. In the book, you also mentioned um, the White House visit of Booker T. Washington, which I thought was an event that gave a good snapshot of their friendship and also provided interesting insight into Roosevelt's thoughts on racial equality. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, it was actually um, a few weeks after Roosevelt had become president that um, he decided to invite the great um, black educator from the South, Booker T. Washington, to dine with him at the White House to talk about the uh, plight of the Negro American, as it was spoken of in those days. Theodore Roosevelt thought nothing of the idea of inviting a black man to his table in the White House, but it had never been done. And when word leaked out that a uh, black man had supped at the White House, um, the criticism that Roosevelt took from newspapers, primarily in the South, was extraordinary. It was explosive. It was vitriolic. How could you, Mr. President? Joseph Buckland Bishop came to Roosevelt's defense in his editorials and said, well, of course it was the right thing to do. Roosevelt never gave a second thought to the idea that that Booker T. Washington was a black man. Roosevelt viewed him as a prominent educator from the South who was a spokesman for um, the Negro community there, and it was as natural as the morning sun that he would have such a leader over to the White House. Bishop, I think, really understood what Roosevelt was trying to do, and he understood the political consequences of this, and there were severe political consequences for Roosevelt politically uh, in 1904. Um, it, it was, it just wasn't done that way. But, um, the two of them saw eye to eye on this, and Roosevelt was deeply appreciative and said so in a letter to Bishop of the support that he gave him on, on this particular matter. So Bishop actually wound up working for Roosevelt in Panama. Can you talk about how that came about and what his position was there? Yes, Bishop had been in newspaper work for um, about 35 years by the time Theodore Roosevelt had been elected in his own right in um, 1904. And he was frankly burned out as a newspaper man. He was tired of the of the backbiting and the competition that, that went on in New York when there were probably 20 or so newspapers vying for readers' attention. And he went to Roosevelt one day and he said... Um, you know, you're you're down in Washington, Mr. President. I'm up in here in New York City, and I'm really too far away to be able to follow what you're doing and to be able to give you my best advice and my support. So he said, I would like to find a job with you in Washington. And eventually, Roosevelt um, appointed Bishop as Secretary of the Panama Canal Commission. 
a position that we would um, identify as an administrator uh, in, in this day. It was an important position. It was the person who sort of um, made the trains run on time, if I can use that analogy. Uh, the commission um, had been appointed by the president to oversee the digging of the Panama Canal, which was a massive undertaking uh, around about 1904-1905, when Roosevelt was intent on uniting the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean with a 50-mile-long um, waterway in Central America. Bishop stayed in Washington for two years running the Canal Commission, but he became a controversial figure, uh, not because he was doing the job badly, but because he was earning uh, $10,000 a year, which in today's dollars is equivalent to almost a quarter of a million dollars. It was it was big money, and Roosevelt's political enemies um decided that they would land on Bishop and use him to embarrass Roosevelt. Well, eventually, Bishop became too hot to handle politically in New York, and it was agreed um, that he should get out of Dodge. And the, the way to do that was to have him go to Panama City in the Isthmus of Panama and become Roosevelt's eyes and ears during the construction of the canal. At first, uh, Bishop wanted no part of this. Um, Panama, of course, had had a history of malaria and yellow fever uh, by abject failure by the French, who had tried to construct a canal in the 1880s and had failed miserably. It was not a hospitable place in the world, and Bishop, who enjoyed his creature comforts, uh, could not see himself there. But eventually... He understood, Bishop understood, that he didn't have a choice, that he could serve Roosevelt in a very important way by leaving Washington, uh, getting out of the political spotlight, and taking a job of substance uh, in Panama. And Bishop stayed there uh, for the next uh, seven years until the canal was complete um, in service to Roosevelt both uh, during the final years of his presidency and in service to um, President William Howard Taft, who had succeeded Roosevelt. What was his life like in Panama? Because they had the whole family came down to join him, correct? Yeah, it actually turned out a pretty comfortable life because Bishop um, ensured that it would become that. As I said, he liked his creature comfort. So in agreeing to take the job and leaving New York and his family, he negotiated a deal with Taft, who was Secretary of War at the time and acting for Roosevelt um, in this negotiation. Uh, the deal was that um, he would have his own private house built for him in Panama City, uh, up on a hill, and that um, since Mrs. Bishop wanted to accompany him, Harriet Bishop wanted to accompany him, that she would have the use of a horse and carriage while she was Panama so she could get about the city and and uh, and do errands and uh, do what she wanted to do. And uh, uh, Colonel Gofels, who was the chief engineer building, canal, building the canal at the time, ordered that um, most of the other construction work on housing be stopped 
so the bishop's house could be built and would be ready for him when he arrived there. So um, right from the start, it, it was a rather uh, comfortable and relatively privileged existence for a bishop. Um, he um, instinctively understood as a, as a journalist and as a communications person that there was a void in Panama uh, between the decisions that the commission was making and Congress was making about the canal and the, the workers um, who were actually in there digging the canal, that working conditions, morale could be improved, understanding, cooperation, all could be improved if there was a little bit of communication. So Bishop um, went ahead and inaugurated what was called the Canal Record, which was a weekly newspaper, usually eight pages, uh, that was published out of his office and distributed to pretty much everybody in Panama, but primarily to the workers uh, who were there, many of them American, many of them from um, Caribbean countries, um, so that they could understand what was going on, what the plans were for the canal, what the progress was, how many metric tons of earth and rock had been moved in a given week. But, you know, I think it was equally important that in the canal record, Bishop gave people the news that they wanted to know as well as what they needed to know. And, for example, um, the work gangs that were digging the canal um, had decided to organize baseball teams among themselves. And it, and it began to develop a rather spirited competition between these teams, um, which was the recreation they had in the off hours. Uh, Bishop wisely understood that it would boost the readership of the canal record if he reported on the results of the baseball games. And that kind of thing, that kind of information, um, really um, uh, spread the popularity of the canal record and uh, allowed it to become a very important communications tool during the construction period and one that contributed to high morale and high productivity that allowed the canal to be finished on time and under budget. What was the state of the two men's friendship after Roosevelt left the presidency and as they aged? Well, that the friendship actually went into um, a sort of a pause period after Roosevelt left the White House. He um, had designated William Howard Taft to be his successor, and Taft was indeed elected. Roosevelt um, said at the time, this would have been 1909 or so, um, it was his last chance to be a boy. So he decided to go on an African safari, a year-long African safari, followed by a grand tour of Europe. Later on, a couple of years later, um, he went on a ill-fated journey uh, down the River of Doubt, the unexplored River of Doubt in Brazil. During this period, um, the letter stopped. Uh, Bishop returned to New York to uh, resume his literary career. And this was in part because 
Bishop could never really understand why Roosevelt would waste his time doing these sorts of things. He saw Roosevelt as a dedicated, committed, capable public servant, and he never never quite understood why somebody would go to Africa to shoot big game and would put himself through this horrible experience of um, sailing down the river of doubt into the Amazon jungles. So their friendship went on hold for a period of time um, until Roosevelt decided to challenge Taft for the presidency in 1912 in the famous um, Bull Moose uh, election. Presidential politics was something Bishop could understand. And when Roosevelt made the effort to uh, resume uh, his political career and try again for the presidency, Bishop reemerges in the letter as a as a, um, a fan on the sidelines cheering him on. How big of an impact did Bishop have on shaping our view of Roosevelt's legacy? I think it was a very significant view. Um, it came about in about 1914, I believe, is when it started, when Roosevelt summoned uh, Bishop to Sagamore Hill one day and surprised him and said, I want you to write the story of my life. You know it almost as well as I do. And I will turn over to you for exclusive use all of my official papers from the time I kept a diary as a schoolboy at Harvard through my presidency and beyond. And um, I know that you will tell my story correctly. Bishop was totally surprised, totally taken back by this. He never, never saw it coming, but he couldn't have been more pleased. It was really the final chapter in his own life to tell the story of his great friend Theodore Roosevelt. And um, Bishop used the access he had, the exclusive use uh, of the papers, of the Roosevelt papers, to write what came to be known as the authorized biography of Theodore Roosevelt, which was named Theodore Roosevelt and His Time in his own letters, as told in his own letters. It was published in uh, two volumes in 1920 um, after Roosevelt's death. But Roosevelt had reviewed some of the early uh, galley proofs of the book and, of course, um, approved largely of what he saw, suggested um, Bishop go in this direction and that. And admittedly, it was a worshipful biography of Roosevelt. Um, And it is considered that today, not necessarily an objective biography, or certainly not a critical biography, but a worshipful biography. But it's important to remember that at the time it was being written, at the time Roosevelt died, Theodore Roosevelt was a worshipped figure in this country and throughout the world. Not by everyone, of course. He he didn't win the, the 1912 presidential election. Um, he lost it to a Democrat, Woodrow Wilson. But by and large, uh, he was a revered figure. And when the biography was reviewed in the New York Times and elsewhere, I think people generally agreed 
that it captured the essence and the spirit of Roosevelt because it spoke through his own words in the letters that Bishop used to write it. Mm -hmm. So what do you, as both a relative and a biographer, what do you see as Bishop's legacy? Well, you know, he... His, his legacy was an important one. I don't think it was appreciated before this book because it was virtually unknown except to uh, Roosevelt scholars. But I think Bishop um, is now seen increasingly as an important figure in the life of Roosevelt in that he helped him open, throw open the gates of the White House to the press corps. He established a pioneering relationship between politician and journalist. And in this case, I'm referring to a journalist who wrote opinions, not an objective reporter, but somebody who was paid to have opinions. Um, he and Roosevelt, I think, um, wrote the book on how uh, political leaders and uh, opinionated journalists can work together to help the public uh, to a greater appreciation of what the political figure was trying to accomplish. Uh, Bishop's biography is appreciated today as sort of the bedrock document that all of subsequent biographers have used from um, all the way up through Edmund Morris, who has written the brilliant trilogy of Roosevelt, and to many others. Um, they all started reading uh, Bishop's book, and the letters of Roosevelt um, to give them uh, an approach to their own work. So I think increasingly with the publication of this book, at least it's my hope, that not only will people come to a more fuller appreciation of Theodore Roosevelt, but they will um, understand and appreciate the role that his pal Joe Bishop played in his life and his legacy. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about The Lion and the Journalist. Any idea what you're going to be writing next? Yes, I'm actually in the middle of uh, another um, biographical book. It's um, about Theodore Roosevelt's youngest son, whose name was Quentin. And Quentin was uh, his favorite son. He had uh, four sons and two daughters. Quentin was the youngest. Uh, he was um, of the Roosevelt uh, children, the one who was most like his father, the one who was most likely to succeed, the one most likely to go on to a life in politics. But regrettably, um, Quentin never that had that opportunity. He um, signed up to go to war, World War One, as an aviator. And shortly after going to the front in France, he was shot down and killed by German fighters and died um, when he was only 20 years old. That story is vaguely familiar, I think, to some people, but what what isn't known is um, Quentin's full life as a young man, as a student, um, and as the secret fiancé of Flora Payne Whitney, who was a Vanderbilt as well as a Whitney, and one who um, played an important role in um, in the early days in the history of World War One. So my second book is called um, Quentin and Flora, 
and it's the story of their friendship um, that is expressed through um, a couple of hundred letters that they wrote to each other while Clinton was serving uh, in France. It's a great love story. It's a it's a tragedy. It's a heroic story uh, of two young people in love who never quite realized um, their own destiny together. Uh, Flora, Flora uh, lived um, many years. She uh, lived deep into her 80s and had an illustrious career as the founder uh, of the Whitney Museum of Art in um, New York. I, I will not be going into her life uh, in the art museum. That's for uh, a story for others to tell. But I will tell the um, the story of Quentin and Flora growing up and their um, fascinating and tragic um, life together leading up to Quentin's uh, death in World War One. That sounds fascinating. Thanks again, Chip. I've been talking today with Chip Bishop about his book, The Lion and the Journalist, The Unlikely Friendship of Theodore Roosevelt and Joseph Buckland Bishop, which is now out in hardback. I'm Olay Neaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening. <laughs>